0: what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. Good morning. It's 927 AM central daylight time. It is, uh, April the 1st 2019 this is episode 79 of Bitcoin and and I've sold all of my bitcoin because I just had to buy tron. I'm sorry guys it happened uh tron's just a it's just a superior technology with superior people behind it and su- I, superior I just god I can't I I can't I worst April fool's joke ever because it's so full of bullshit. I can't even see straight. Uh, what are we going to do today? We're going to talk about biochar and gasification and a little technique called pyrolysis. Uh, we're going to do the other stuff too, but I just gone, I have gone way too long without getting uh, Bitcoin and others things uh, together together. In the same podcast, I, I've, it's been far too long since I've discussed edge effect. It's been far too long since I've, you know, deviated from the mission of the podcast. So we're going back, I'm going back to it. Uh, and biochar is if you want to talk about edge effect, there is no more edge than biochar, I can almost guarantee that. But before we do, we are going to do. Some morning roundup. So let's get on into this thing a uh, bit, bit, hum, or by thumb or whatever the hell you want to call it. Uh, funds are SAFU. Okay. Funds are SAFU according to buy thumb. Um, Oh, hold on. Sorry about that. Uh, for whatever reason, the link that I had, Apparently got redirected to a Chinese website. I don't read Chinese. Uh that's yeah. Okay. Anyway, so CCN article. This is ccn.com. This is by Paul De Haviland. And it says massive Bitcoin exchange hack exposes bit thumbs or buy thumbs, arrogant disregard of security. This was written yesterday. In another blow to the crypto industry's reputation, South Korean Bitcoin exchange BitHum was attacked again on Saturday morning. The hack marks the second time the exchange has been successfully penetrated in less than a year. Is arrogance or incompetence to blame? The BitHum hack saw the offenders make off with around $20 million U.S. worth of EOS And Ripple, 3 million EOS were stolen along with 20 million XRP uh, tokens. Influential crypto analyst Dovey Wan initially tweeted that the exchange's cold wallet had been targeted, though that ultimately proved to be inaccurate. BitHum was previously attacked last June, losing around $30 million worth of cryptocurrencies. That came within three weeks of an agreement it reached with Korean tax authorities to pay $28 million worth of back taxes. The timing raised eyebrows in the industry. High-profile crypto Twitter identity whale panda certainly saw red. Whale Panda says Bithum has to pay $28 million worth of back taxes and now lost $30 million less than two weeks later. <laughs> South Korean crypto exchanges have a woeful record of exchange hacks, embezzlement, and fraud. Yobit was hacked twice in 2017, once in April for $35 million, and again in December. The December hack forced the exchange to file for bankruptcy. It then reemerged as Coinbin within months. In February this year, Coinbin filed for bankruptcy after failing to recover from $26 million in losses. Claims of an inside job and embezzlement circled the embattled company. That followed a late 2018 exit scam by PyraBit, which disappeared with 13,000 ETH. (laughs) Sorry, I can't help it. Bithum's most recent hacking is inexcusable. Given the country's record of security breaches and Korean authorities crackdown on the industry, one might expect Korean exchanges to have the most rigorous security protocols in the world. The fact that it has been less than 12 months since its last hack indicates BitHum has a complete lack of regard for its customers' welfare. Hot wallet balances must sit at an absolute minimum to maintain necess- necessary liquidity at exchanges. Having a $15 million EOS hot wallet balance is irresponsible. Way back in July 2017, hackers infiltrated the exchange's records and gained access to personal data. Of 30,000 customers and all of its employees. Korean regulators tried to clamp down on the industry and rein in the criminal elements operating within it. It appears that while they may have put some businessmen in prison, they have failed to instill a security first attitude among exchange operators. It will be fascinating to see if the Korean public finally gives BitHum the thumbs down it deserves. Assuming, of course, they have faith in any alternatives. Koreans once paid a kimchi premium for cryptocurrencies. It appears the premium price was for an inferior product. So there you go. There's there's that one. Bithum has made a uh, oh a, a nice little statement in, in, in a tweet that says we we deeply apologize to our members for delaying the cryptocurrency deposit and withdrawal service. We would like to inform you of the circumstances of the grounds and confirm that your assets are safe. No, they're not. No, <laughs> they're, they're, any, they're anything but safe. Oh my God. Is yes, You might as, I mean, you might as well just like, you know, where do you, where do you keep your safest stuff? Oh, I I keep it in the fireplace on top of a raging fire. That's the safest place for my flammable products. No, 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 nobody is safe with your shit on exchanges. Now for those people who trade, if you're going to trade, you're going to end up having all of your, well, not all, but having some of your, your coins on exchanges. Yeah, we get that. Um, But at any given time, whatever it is that your little pool that you're trading with is going to be subject to disappearance, just flat out disappearance. Do not trust any of this crap, people, because you're going to get burned and probably burned to death. So what does Bitcoin magazine have to say about lightning payments? ZebPay integrates Bitcoin Lightning Payments on its mobile app. All right, this is from Jimmy Aki. Malta-based cryptocurrency exchange ZebPay now supports Lightning Payments. The exchange announced the news via a blog post where it claims to be the first major exchange to enable Lightning Payments for its users. Per the report, ZebPay users can now log into their wallet and use their Bitcoin balances to make micro-purchases for free. Quote, making Bitcoin technology widely accessible is a key component of our roadmap. Today, with the integration of the Lightning Network, we have taken yet another step in this direction. ZebPay CEO Ajit Kruna explains in the release Wider adoption of crypto. ZebPay believes Lightning payments can drive widespread adoption of Bitcoin across the globe by making it easier to make payments for goods and services without fees. The post reads ZebPay would bear the transaction costs for all Lightning transactions done from its wallet and continue to evangelize this technology. To start using Lightning, ZebPay users have to sign into their wallet and enable the Lightning tab. Lightning payments on Zebpay will work in quick, easy steps that involve either scanning or pasting the product's invoice into the wallet to effect payment. Lightning payments through ZebPay are currently limited to 10 transactions a day for a total value of of 0.02 Bitcoin, roughly eight bucks at current price. Karana, however, believes the amount gets the job done for most purchases. In an email interview with Bitcoin magazine, he said the exchange found that most Lightning stores can be served with this limit. There is no reason why ZebPay won't keep revising and improving this based on how the ecosystem/slash tech grows. In fact, Right after the first day of going live, we doubled their limits. Lightning payments are available for users on both the Android and iOS app. Earlier this year, ZebPay expanded its presence in Europe, opening offices in Spain, Slovakia, Romania, Lithuania, and Liechtenstein. Nice. Nice. Okay. That's, yeah. So adoption's coming along. You you, you know, merchant adoption is, is coming along. Merchant adoption will... Will has has a tendency to drive how people adopt various payment methods. I mean, you know, back in the day when uh, credit cards were not a thing, a very, 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 very few people would would accept uh, uh, credit cards. As that ecosystem grew, more and more merchants said, okay, well, we'll go ahead and put, you know, the American Express sign up and... Lo and behold, more and more people started using American Express until American Express got their panties in a wad and decided to charge the living shit out of their vendors for usage of their system. So that's why Visa and MasterCard became the predominant plastic payment method of the day because they did not do that. Although they, over the last few months, I've read stories where that seems to be changing itself so we, we shall see but this is just the next in you know next next in you know next up on deck Bitcoin for that kind of thing so uh, that's gonna do it for your morning roundup let's get in to something dirty Edge effect. Edge effect, edge effect. I cannot find outside of outside of Bitcoin. I do not find very much, uh, or, or I find a lot of edge effect. However, not anywhere close to as much as biochar. So what the hell is it? Biochar It's charcoal, man. That's, that's all it is. Um, <clears throat> But there is a difference between biochar and your regular bagged chunk charcoal that you would use to grill a nice tasty steak or something like that. Uh, Biochar uh, is a very, very stable form of carbon. Now, regular charcoal that you would use to grill some tasty steaks – still has quite a bit of flammable gases or, or rather flammable substances that when heated will off gas and those gases are actually combustible. So with, with biochar, those gases are not present because the process to make your regular old chunk charcoal is different than the way that you make charcoal. They both result in black high carbon, uh, high amounts of carbon substances, but the two are very, 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 very different. Um, and what, what do I mean by, by that other than the fact that chunk charcoal still has a quite a bit of volatile chemistry that can be released under, under heated conditions. Um, the one of the main things about biochar and why we even give a shit about it is that it's a great soil amendment. Um And and we'll, that's why that's the whole reason I'm talking about it today is it's because of its, you know, its qualities. And one of those qualities is a very, very high surface area, which gives it a very, very high edge effect. Now, this is the biochar side. The reason it has so much surface area is because the technique that was used to make the the actual biochar. Now, the technique to make charcoal is almost the same, but it's nowhere close to as effective. And that's for a reason, because you want charcoal to be able to light up, stay hot, stay hot for a while so that you can grill nice, tasty steaks. That would not happen with biochar. In fact, if you had chunks of biochar and lit it on fire, you'd have a fire for maybe a couple of minutes. Like, like just think of like however much charcoal you would use on like, a, you know, your grill, the same, like the same amount, the same, like, you know, the same size pile. If you lit the charcoal, the actual charcoal, that thing's going to last for, you know, I don't know, let's say an hour the same the same amount in biochar a couple of minutes and the reason is because it's pretty much nothing but carbon whereas charcoal has a whole bunch of other stuff still in it also charcoal does not have the amount of surface area that biochar has it doesn't have the the, the it won't have the same capacity for edge effect as biochar does And because biochar is almost all pure carbon, the minute that it hits a heat source, it automatically ignites and converts itself to carbon dioxide and water vapor and nothing else. I mean, literally, man, nothing else. There's nothing else there because it's just carbon. And under an an ignition event, it just goes away. It would make the crappiest, grilling charcoal on the face of the planet. So, so keep, understand that these are two completely different things. They look a lot alike, but for, uh, volume, if in like, let's say I had a cubic meter of biochar and a cubic meter of charcoal, the cubic meter of biochar is going to weigh like 20 times less because all of in charcoal, it still contains a whole bunch of other chemistries that have not volatile volatilized off in the heat in the uh, pyrolysis uh, uh, reaction. So, <clears throat> why do we give a shit? <laughs> well, if you were to look at a under a very high power microscope, what you would see is a, in uh, of biochar, what you would actually see is a whole bunch of surface area. little pores, little you know, almost like little cells that uh, and when I don't mean mammal cells, I mean like like empty cells with walls that have nothing basically nothing in them. And what ends up happening is you throw this stuff in soil, and it ends up being like a condominium for all manner of microorganisms that are soil-based microorganisms, and that's bacteria, uh, very small nematodes, uh, mycorrhizal fungi, fungi, other kinds of fungi. Um, I mean, you name it, man. If it's in the soil, this thing ends up being a massive apartment building. And once they once the biochar becomes in some in some cases people call this stuff activated already like activated charcoal that's what activated charcoal is it's biochar not charcoal biochar but in this case when i mean activated i mean where all the rooms are filled with residents and those residents are like microorganisms and i've talked about i've talked about the the benefits a long time ago i think it was episode like 7 or something like that where I did a show on mycorrhizal fungi, um, and what its benefits are to plants. Um, and it's not just benefit, uh, about 95% of all plant life on the face of this planet depend on an association with mycorrhizal fungi. Otherwise that organism is not going to grow and, it's, and probably going to die. These things have been have co-evolved like plants and mycorrhizal fungi have co-evolved over millions, hundreds of millions of years. And they have a pretty sweet deal worked out with each other where the mycorrhizal fungi get sugars that are produced via photosynthesis from the plant because fungus are obligate heterotrophs. They do not, they cannot make their own food. They have to get their food from food from an external source. In this case, mycorrhizal fungi associate with tree roots, plant roots, grass roots, all that kind of stuff. Those plants make the sugar through photosynthesis and then exude it through their roots. The mycorrhizal fungi pick that up as their carbon source and in return, go out into the soil and mine stuff like potassium, phosphorus, All all manner of like light salts, light earth metals, um, like well, and and get into some heavier earth metals as well, and then they exchange that to the plant for the sugars. They have a nice little market going on. They have literally have like sort of a free market action going on in the soil. But like all microorganisms, it's not just one that that helps these plants, you know, do their thing, and it's also not just you know, it's not just these things that, you know, it's not just mycorrhizal fungi that, that benefit from the sugars exuded in the soil. Bacteria do too. And bacteria is one of not all bacteria, but in, in the case of soil-borne bacteria, many of those organisms, many of those species are responsible directly for taking nitrogen out of the air in the form that you get it in, in, in the air and then convert it into a nitrogen source that the plant can use because the nitrogen that's in the air is basically in two, right? It's not, it doesn't really like, yeah, nitrogen sort of is homophobic uh, or or rather heterophobic insofar as it doesn't like to really form bonds with other types of chemistries. To get it to do so takes an, a, a a lot of energy. And also, that said, that's why we have tri-nitrile toluene or TNT, because when you do finally coax nitrogen to split from its other brother nitrogen and go into some other kind of chemistry, like in toluene um, or trinitrile toluene, it's a very precarious relationship because nitrogen doesn't want to be there. Nitrogen wants to be in the form of N2. That's the lowest energy that nitrogen has or that that particular system has in all systems in the universe are always going for the lowest energy state that it can because apparently being in a higher energy state in the universe is an irritant in either event nitrogen wants to be with its with its own own kind so bad that it will it will cause explosions to get out of those bonds with other chemistries so that it can go back to be an N2. Now, that said, well, this is also one of the reasons why uh, nitrogen fertilizers can be used to make bombs. Because, well, nitrogen, like I said, is seeking the lowest state of energy, and it will do anything that it can to get there. So, in the in the atmosphere, you're looking at a nitrogen that cannot really be used by plants directly. It can only be used by plants indirectly. Right. So, um, that said, you need a system that takes into out of the environment, out of the air, splits it off in a chem, basically in a, in a chemical factory of the bacteria themselves, and then starts making stuff like nitrate, and nitrite, and I think it goes from from uh, nitrite to nitrate. And when you get to the nitrate is where plants can say, oh, hey, look, nitrogen, I can use this to grow. Like nit- that's where why we put nitrogen on fields or nitrogen fertilizers on fields. All that bacteria that's in the soil is doing the same, is sort of doing, has the same kind of free market relationship with plant roots. What they do is they get sugars from the plant as a carbon source. And in return, as they're going about their daily business, now that they have a good carbon source in the way of sugars, they can do the thing that they do best. And many of them take nitrogen from the atmosphere for their own use. And then by the time that they poop it out, it's in a form that the plant can use. So it's behooves the plant to get a good relationship going on with all these little critters in the soil so that they can get stuff from mycorrhizal fungi, so that they can get nitrogen from bacteria sources and and way, way more interactions there than than I can even remotely shake a stick at. However, we come back to biochar. Biochar provides a huge amount of surface area for bacteria and fungi to st- to, right? And because there's like, because the, the air, the, the system that we're talking about is so microscopic, even rainstorms can wash this stuff away. Things don't really kind of want to leave. If they can, they will cling to something, but they need something to cling to and clay particles and sand is just not quite enough. It also helps that, uh, these, Um, these things that this biochar, these little tiny rooms or cells in the biochar provide safety and security for these guys regulating temperature. They hide them from critters that want to eat them so that they can have great big families that constantly are kicking out more and more microorganisms so that the soil is always charged with the critters that it takes to support everything Above the ground, because without these little critters in the in the soil, everything you see on top of the ground, you can kiss it goodbye because it will not be here. All right. So I'm I'm going to take a I'm going to take a little step back and get into what got me thinking about doing this as a a subject of a show for the day. Uh, Bill Gates tweeted out something yesterday that triggered the shit out of me. Um, He says, this surprised me. There's more carbon in soil than in the atmosphere and all plant life combined. Here's what that means for how we fight climate change. Am I triggered because he didn't know that? No, most people don't know that. Is he wrong? No, he's actually correct. What's triggering me here is the uh, uh, article that he links to on his website, gatenotes.com. Uh, and he, and the thing about it is, is I'm going to read a little bit, a little bit from this, but, uh, the, the, the thing about this is, is it's just the wrong way to think about this stuff. And it keeps bringing back, it keeps bringing up shit that we're tired of hearing, hearing about like cow farts. So let me get into this. And, and we are going to stop. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to stop when I come to this particular point. I'm done with cow farts. This is by Bill Gates. I've written about them several times over the last six months, and I bring them up in polite conversation more than I should. In my defense, I have a legitimate reason cows, with their burps and farts, are a good example of something that contributes to climate change but isn't related to generating electricity. Already the short-sightedness of this thing is just stupendous most discussions about fighting climate change focus on electricity and the need for renewable energy decarbonizing the way we generate electricity would be a huge step but it won't be enough if we don't reach zero net emissions from every sector of the economy within 50 years and i make a and we make a serious dent in the next 10 that includes agriculture forestry and land use sectors which is responsible for 24% of all greenhouse gas emissions, just one percentage point less than electricity. Gassy cattle are a memorable and significant example of emissions, but they are not the only contributor to agriculture, forestry, and land use a slice of the emissions pie. We're just as well off picking on soil. Here's a mind-blowing fact. There's more carbon in the soil than in the atmosphere and all plant life combined. That's not a big deal when left to its own devices. But when soil gets disturbed like it does when you convert a forest into cropland, all that stored carbon gets released into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. There's one reason why deforestation alone is responsible for 11% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. Another reason is that forest and grasslands are natural carbon sinks. Clearing them reduces the planet's capacity to remove carbon dioxide from the air. So how do we fight climate change caused by agriculture? We simply can't get rid of soil or stop growing crops using fertilizer and raising livestock. There are some changes that societies can make. People <clears throat> make people in level 1 and level and 2 countries will eat more meat as they move up the income ladder. So people in level 3 and 4 countries could consume less to compensate, for example. But at the end of the day, people need to eat. That's why the goal with agriculture is not to reduce the amount created, but to reduce emissions per product. I'm involved with a group called Breakthrough Energy Ventures that is backing a number of creative solutions to tackle the problem. Because every country and every culture approaches food production differently, there are a lot of different ways to do that. Here are some of the ones that I find most interesting. Microscopic nitrogen factories that replace fertilizer. What if we could fertilize plants without releasing so much harmful nitrous oxide into the air? BEV is invested in a company called Pivot Bio that has genetically modified microbes to produce provide plants with the nitrogen they need without the excess greenhouse gases that synthetic alternatives produce. Watch this video to learn more about how it works and this is exactly where I'm going to stop reading. What kind of bullshit is this? Genetically modified microbes to provide plants with the nitrogen they need, we already have that. They've been on this planet for a billion years. More than that. The earth is something like 2.4 billion years old. I guarantee you. We were looking at higher organisms that were able to reduce nitrogen into Nitric or uh, Nitrate through the reduction of nitrite, and that is fertilizer. It happens in the soil every day. Every square inch of soil you see except possibly Arctic and Antarctic tundras and deserts that get like less than a half an inch of rain a year, something like that. Everywhere else, this shit already exists. This is why I'm triggered. Why in the hell, how the hell can you be that rich, that much resources, just now discover that there's more carbon in the soil than anywhere else and then immediately go off thinking, wow, we should genetically modify modify bacteria to do X. And then the rest of us are sitting there looking at it and not the rest of us, but those who do know understand that he's talking about shit we already have what it, these people are dangerous right this shit what he's suggesting genetically modified organisms if they, if to put into the soil if that shit outcompetes competes what's already naturally there and then it itself undergoes a mutation where it no longer provides the function that it was supposed to do in the first place which is likely then we we end up in a shit ton of trouble. I'm not I'm not scared about it because I don't think that that's going to happen. I just say, I'm just saying every time that people start jacking around with systems this large, watch out, man, because this shit can come right back and bite you in the ass. I've like I said, I I'm not wrong. All this stuff already exists, and this again is where biochar comes in. Um, the production of biochar is really in, is, is, ends up being a very 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 interesting situation because of the way that it's made. Um, but before we before we get into that part, I want to go into some of the the aspects of biochar. If you have bi- a bag of biochar and you mix it in with the soil, the first thing that you're going to notice is your plants are going to suffer suffer greatly. Not because of the biochar itself, it's because as that plain, sterile biochar is thrown into the soil, the first thing that happens is all the microorganisms in the soil go, holy shit, we just got housing. And they all move in. And while they're in the process of moving in, they're not doing their other job of providing nutrients, nitrogen, uh, metal salts, all that kind of stuff. They're not interested in doing that right now and they don't do it at the, they do it a little bit but they don't do it at the scale that they would if they if they weren't distracted by the fact that there's this massive housing complex that they can set up shop in. So while they're all moving in, a lot of the all the critters in the soil become depleted because they're all busy moving into these things. Now, a couple of years later, maybe just a year depending on the soil fertility, it'll all come back. So what the best thing to do here is make biochar but before you plug it into the ground, you basically charge it with organisms like mycorrhizal fungi, soil bacterias, nematodes, and I'm not talking about the the crappy nematodes. There's two different kinds of nematodes, little worms that are in the soil, and I'm talking about earthworms. I'm talking about way smaller. There are nematodes that cause like nematode root rot, and you don't like those. Those are crappy, but there's also nematodes that do a lot of good because they're predators and they they change over the life in the soil by eating and pooping. And they're not eating plant roots, they're eating like other organisms. It's the plant root eating nematodes that we don't like, but if you have a whole bunch of good nematodes in there as well, it keeps the system in balance. And once the system's in balance, you don't have anywhere close to the amount of pest problems. All that aside, the best way to do that charging is to have, is essentially soak it in, I hate to say it, human urine is actually one of the best ways to to get this thing charged because it will start pulling nitrogen-fixing bacteria out of the atmosphere. And once that's done, plug it into the soil, the mycorrhizal fungi will just kind of start coming along, you know, moving into whatever, you know, wasn't done. You can also, there's a, a lot of different other ways that you can do it. You can... Throw a whole bunch of biochar into an active compost pile, or a compost pile that has gone through its composting process and is just sitting there, but and ready to be used. Don't use it. Just throw your biochar on it, mix it all in, turn it over, and then wait about a month. And you know, make sure that it's moist because that's the one of the other things about biochar is its high hygroscop- hygroscopicity. We'll get into that. And leave this, leave it in the, in the compost and then just plug the compost into the soil. All right. So at that point, then you won't see some kind of dramatic negative effect on your plants because all the residences in the porosity and all the edges are already filled with bacteria. So it'll just sit there and just crank out families and families and families and generations and generations of microorganisms from these little condominiums and they'll spread it they'll keep spreading out into the soil and it will like literally act as a never-ending source of soil biology and soil uh, bioactivity okay the other thing about edge effect here is that th- all those edges the amount of surface area i think it's a uh, i think it's a teaspoon the amount of surface area of a teaspoon of biochar is equal to a tennis court. Some people say a football field. The the numbers vary because the math can get off by an order of magnitude every once in a while. But suffice it to say the amount of edge effect in, um, sorry, the amount of edge effect that is present in a teaspoon of this stuff is immense. And that's really important for being having the property of uh, being hygroscopic. Hygroscopic. It means water attaches to it and has a tendency to not want to let go. So what do I mean by that? One gram of this stuff will soak up 10 grams of water. It is a 1 to 10 ratio of weight versus how much water it can take up. And it's not just that it takes up the water. It's that it clings to it with a death grip, which means that while it's in the soil, if it is completely saturated, if it is at its saturation point, and I'm talking about the biochar, if you were to look at a soil drying out in the sun with biochar versus a soil drying out in the sun without biochar, you're going to have moisture loss That is significant in the one that doesn't have biochar about 10 times faster than the one with biochar. You can think of it as also a sponge. So not only does it, you know, not only does it house communities of bioactive uh, microorganisms, it also is like the community pool. And every time that it gets soaked with water, it holds that water again with a death grip. And you want that, especially if you live where I live in Panhandle of Texas. I mean, our summers are freaking brutal. It'll dry soil out like something you've never seen. So there's the whole, you know, holding on to water issue just does wonders for the soil. Um <clears throat> Oh yeah. Okay. Now for the, the, we'll get into the hippie aspect of biochar climate change, man, this is a carbon sink, the likes of which nobody ever, you know, has ever seen because it's pure carbon. It's not 98% carbon. It's not 85% carbon. It's pure carbon, all of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, there might be like a rock and, in, in, you know, as you make a batch of this stuff, there might be like some sand in it. Eh, who gives a shit? What we're talking about here is the actual lattice work of the biochar itself. And when you get, when you break into that, it's 100% pure carbon. There's nothing left. There's no aromatics. There's no volatiles. There's no nothing. It's just carbon, not carbon dioxide in a lattice, carbon carbon, right? So it sequesters carbon. And when you put it into the soil and you don't burn it, it is there for thousands of years. It is what's called, it's what's called being recalcitrant. Like many of us on Bitcoin Twitter, our Bitcoin maximalism is recalcitrant, right? So it just means that once the carbon is put into the soil, it stays there damn near forever. I mean, thousands of years and thousands of years, we don't really know how long it lasts. What we do know is that as long as you don't disturb the soil, it's pretty much going to be there forever, okay, forever. Even if you till the soil, it's going to be there for a long time. I don't advocate tilling soil, but it happens, so I'm not going to bitch about it. Um. So what does that mean? Why? Why is this something about climate change? Well, this is what... Kind of like what Bill's talking about, but he doesn't, he hasn't gotten there yet. The amount, the way that we make biochar is through a process called gasification and or pyrolysis. Um, We'll talk about that here in a sec. But the thing about it is, is you need something to start with. You have to have something to start with. What do we start with for this? Wood, scrap wood. And, you know... That because trees, when you look at trees, all you really need to think of is massive carbon sink because it pulls CO2 directly out of the atmosphere, turns it into sugars. Eventually, those sugars get arranged in lignin and other types of wood fibers that are basically there for the life of the tree until the tree dies, falls over. And then all the soil microorganisms that are touching start getting into it and then will eventually decompose. But as they do that, they'll produce CO2. In this particular case, you go get scrap wood, you put it into what's called a retort, and then you send it send it on through the gasification process, which is essentially you put all this all this wood in a chamber, um, you light a fire underneath the chamber, not in the chamber. It's basically like think of it like putting the wood in a gigantic o- gas fired you know oven, and when you do that, you're it drives the first thing that happens is it starts driving off all of the oxygen in the chamber. So now you have a really low oxygen environment, which is the way charcoal is made too. A very very low heat or a high heat, low oxygen environment will cause it to not be able to burn in the presence of oxygen. So basically, it just stays hot, smolders, and then all the gases, are, you know, or not all. The ga- in charcoal, at least, not all the gases are kicked out, but in biochar, yes, all the volatiles, all the aromatics are kicked out. Those gases are highly flammable. In fact, they're they, <clears throat> from a calorie per cal- in in a gram per gram comparison with natural gas, it pretty much makes the exact same amount of calories in heat, right? Except it's from wood. Where would we be getting all this wood? man, I mean, in, you know, in my neck of the woods, we go down to the, uh, I go down to the trash uh, where the, the landfill. And that's where every storm that comes by huge branches break off the of trees. You do that enough times you end up with these massive piles of wood that are just sitting there in my, like I said, in my case at the landfill, they take it through a chipper and then they're hoping that people will come get all the chipped wood for mulch and stuff, which some people do, but for the most part, that wood just sits there and it just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. And builds. This system, we take those wood chips because you can't just put a log into this thing. It's got to have some kind of homogeneous, uh, uh, It's it's got the feedstock, the wood that you put in has to be sort of, the same size all the way around. And you can do it with like board lumber that's old. Uh, You could do it with sticks of wood, as long as they're, you know, roughly the same size, unless they're too big of a radius, in which case you can't. um, There's an optimal size limit to this stuff, but you can do it with like wood chips. Hell, you can make this stuff with leaves. You can make it with grass. The best feedstock is wood though. And so by taking waste wood from a uh, from a landfill such as mine and take it through the gasification process as that gas starts coming off of the wood that gas is returned to the burn chamber underneath the retort and keeps the 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 reaction going by combusting that gas that's driven off of the wood and keeps on heating that chamber so after it's all said and done what ends up happening is the final the final gases blow off the chamber can no longer self-heat itself, so the whole system shuts down. And then you wait 24 hours because if you open that retort and it's hot, the oxygen is going to combine, the reaction is going to basically just turn that wood direct to ash and you've lost the entire thing because it's like, it's, it's like that. You let the whole thing cool down for 24 hours, you open the retort, and you've got a whole bunch of, of, of firewood. So about half of the carbon in the wood is driven off as gas. The other half of the carbon is kept and will be sequestered in the soil for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And while it's there, it's doing all the good shit that I talked about before. So how does this fight climate change? Well, every time that we get you know storms coming through, if we had these if we had these things in towns and municipalities all over the place, We'd be able to make biochar for all these, you know, for the municipality, sell it back to the municipality, make a profit on it. As long as the profit exceeds the cost of operation of the whole damn thing, then we should, you know, we'd be, we'd actually be golden. Plus, Gates Foundation may even fund it. You could maybe even ask the, you know, I don't know, World Wildlife Federation or something like that for money. There's, there's plenty of people who would love to figure out a way to be green and fund green projects, uh, which they can't do themselves. This is one of those ideas. How does this shit fit with Bitcoin? Just so happens the gas that's being driven off of the wood in the gasification paralysis process is so clean. After you need to, you do need to take it through what's called a biofilter. And I won't get into that, but the gas being pumped out of this thing, I believe that in this particular case, portions of that gas, some can go back to the burn chamber to continue the, the reaction. But before that happens, you can have a split valve and take some off. Now, why do I say this? Well, it's because this gas, once it goes through the biofilter is actually so clean that you can run a generator on it, like you would run a generator on natural gas. It, I've seen it, I've seen it myself. I never believed in this crap. I was like wood powering a, a, a an electric generator, bullshit. That's the first thing that I I thought. The more I looked at it, the more I realized it is not bullshit. This technology has actually been around for a long time. You can run a car and it has been done. Go look for automobile, gas, uh, gasified automobile or car and gasification. And you will find a guy running a truck off of a fireplace in the bed, essentially. OK, so now what we have is, a, a, you know, any anybody who knows anything about Bitcoin is automatically going mining, mining, anyone mining, mining. So the sin gas or biogas that's produced off of this can run an electric generator. That electric generator can run miners for as long as the pyrolysis process is kicking off gas. Um, what's interesting here is how many so how many ways can we capture the energy that's going that's coming out of this process okay so we've got a retort that's burning wood well it's not burning wood it's pyrolyzing wood the gases are coming off the gases are a being used to continue the reaction of pyrolysis and the other half of the gas is being used to run a large generator i'm not talking guys i'm not talking about a small bullshit generator i'm talking about the kind of generator that is the backup generator for whole hospitals I have seen I have seen a retort run that large of a Jenny. All right, I'm not talking about a Honda 1200. I'm not talking about you know a little bullshit thing that you go down and buy at, at Home Depot. I'm talking about a full blown backup generator that will power the air conditioner and lights and emergency medical equipment for at least the surgery wing of a hospital and the emergency room. That's how big of a generator I'm talking about. And you can run miners off of that. You build a system that can actually be mobile and go out to like my landfill until all of its uh, wood is basically soaked up in the uh, pyrolysis and then move on take your miners with you. You got internet connection. You got satellite connection. Boom. You're off to the races, man. You, you, you could run, you could run this, but it would be what would be way cool because in the larger municipalities, there's no end to the supply of wood. There is no end to the supply of wood. Um, If you make it permanent, then you have the chance to build greenhouses and the waste heat from Not only the generator, but the pyrolysis reaction chambers themselves and the waste heat from the miners could very well be used to heat up a greenhouse in the dead of winter and panhandle winters in the Texas ain't exactly a walk in the park, people. You'd be able to grow greens all year long and sell the greens out the other end Mine Bitcoin, take care of the environment, reduce emissions, get carbon back into the soil. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. And this is that systems level thinking that comes out of permaculture. Because one of the rules, not rules, one of the design considerations of, of permaculture systems is capturing and redistribute redistributing energy, whether that energy is in the form of water, heat, whatever. Capture and redistribution of those energy systems goes a hell of a long way. So while this whole thing about biochar and gasification isn't exactly an analysis to the ecosystem of bitcoin itself it at least does demonstrate that i can that or or not i we can figure out ways to hook these these systems together in meaningful productive ways that capture what would normally be thrown away and turn it into bitcoin now i what i kind of want to do for the rest of the week is pull some more of this stuff out. So for the rest of the week, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about biochar and a little, you know, like get into a little bit more of the mechanics gasification and what, you know, I'll I'll try to pull together some links of people that are building these systems, get some videos so that you know that I'm not full of shit. All right. There's, there's plenty of videos out there. I will go find the, the ones that, that, kind of got me where I just said wow this shit really works <laughs> and put them into show notes and uh, and we'll examine examine this this thing a little bit more throughout the week but for now that's going to do it for the biochar talk let's uh let's let's go check in on Marty and see what Marty has to say Friday, March the 29th, 2019, issue number 451. Matt O'Dell says Coinbase has been storing crypto for institutional hedge fund clients since 2017, but the new so-called staking services will allow those investors to tap into rewards offered by certain types of digital assets running on proof of stake networks. Marty has this to say, it's always nice to check in on certain trends to see how they are progressing. And this morning, we're going to do a quick flyby on the inevitable wave of exchanges adding staking services to their offerings. We last touched on this subject in September of last year after gate.io announced it was offering staking services to its users. Today, it appears that Coinbase is officially ready to start unleashing these services on their institutional clients holding Tezos, the party has officially started. This naturally leads to pointing out the glaringly obvious vulnerability of these types of services, heavily centralizing proof of state chains since exchanges are able to offer interest rates above the market rate due to their economies of scale. This may prove too enticing for token holders to pass up which in turn could lead to the coin bases of the world amassing a percentage of the total supply of some chains that gives them undue influence over said chains. Something to pay attention to as these services become popular and as more poor souls fall prey to the siren calls of proof of stake. Luckily for us, our friend Matt O'Dell is on the case documenting this tr- the trend in this thread – We here at Marty's Bent will keep you freaks updated as this trend continues to gain steam. Final thought on a huge, quote, listen to the songs your favorite rappers have sampled, end quote, kick. Not a bad kick to be on. Enjoy your weekend, freaks. Thank you, Marty. So it's torchlight time. And Bass Peters at BAS underscore zero two says eight hours ago. Actually, more like nine hours ago. Good morning, y'all. Waking up this morning to the number 14. That is the amount left to be joined on the LN Trust chain. We are currently here. Tried hard, but no success in getting it. Check out TallyCoin Fundraiser. And then there's the that that tally coin fundraiser that Hodel, Hodel and not put up to uh get more money for the Venezuelans who are having a really hard time lately. And uh what he says, we are currently here, he's giving a he's retweeting Bruce Fenton. And Bruce Fenton at Bruce Fenton says, I have the LN torch. Thank you, Mary BRW, or I'm sorry, Maria Brw. And then um He's got a, a pretty little pit, a pretty little picture of, a, of the Human Torch, uh, number 23, the Human Torch comics, which he apparently bought for 10 cents. Probably not him, actually, but never mind. Don't worry about it. Just for, forget everything I said. Uh, what is kind of cool, though, is the replies to Bruce Fenton's I Have the LN Torch tweet. As I scroll through this, it's really interesting because... I'm seeing, well, there's a, there's a lot of replies and the the replies are from people with an invoice waiting to accept the torch. And the reason I bring that up, I mean, it's not like this doesn't happen. It's just that in Bruce's feed and, and in like a lot of the, in a lot of the thread feeds from the LN trust chain, when somebody announces that they have a torch, it seems like the it's settling into this particular kind of structure where there's not a whole lot of, you know, congratulations or, you know, the trust chain is bad or like all these other tweets, it's now settling more and more into different people automatically posting up their, uh, their lightning invoice because they want, they want the torch. And so what visually when I'm, when I'm looking at it, I see more invoices from more different people and not, not only that I'm seeing the same people, you know, uh, I would not reinterrogate, basically get a new invoice because the other invoice expired. And then they'll series, they'll serially post it without any comment between them without, I mean, there's not, there's no noise, I guess is what I guess is the best way that I can put it is that as these tweet, as the lightning torch has progressed, The way that the tweet streams of somebody who says they hold the torch has in themselves also progressed to where there's less and less noise and more and more signal where those signals are just simply lightning invoices, re-upping a lightning invoice from the same person after the first one expired, re-upping it again because Bruce hasn't responded or has picked somebody else or has not, you know, I don't think Bruce is. I don't think Bruce is going to be a dick about this. I, I don't think he's going to hold the torch for like three days and and you know use it as a to spray paint his bandwagon so to speak. But it is interesting watching the changes in the landscape of something that is not all that old. I mean, it, everything is well. I guess in terms of Bitcoin, Twitter, it's old because it's been around for like you know a couple of months, but if you actually step back from that timeline and look at it like, Oh, I don't know an actual human being who doesn't know anything about Bitcoin. This shit's happening real quick. Watching the ecosystem solidify itself without any direction, without any instruction, without any prodding or poking or anything like that from extant sources. It's coalescing into this particular style of low noise, high signal, here's the invoice. I want the torch. I I think this, I think huddle or not has started something that even he himself hasn't really, none of us have figured out exactly where this is going to go, but it looks like we're, we're, we're starting having a, you know, we're starting a, I don't know, a, a sort of a language, a sort of a, a vocabulary around lightning network And because this thing is being passed and passed and passed, every generation or every time this thing gets passed, if you call it a generation, every generation, we get cleaner and cleaner and cleaner in what our uh, signal to noise ratio actually is on this. So that's going to do it for your torchlight. Daily train Wreck is brought to you by Grubles at Not Grubles. So proud of our team! Can't wait to start exploring all the economic activity on Ethereum. And uh, Not Grubles is, has a link to a little picture here from Blockstream.info. Uh, Ethereum block explorer Sink in progress: point zero 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 eight four percent looking for peers estimated time of arrival infinity oh yeah the chain the the, the ethereum blockchain is so big that it's becoming impossible to sync a node which means it's it's, in my opinion, its path is clear. It's going. It has to go to central to a, a centralized state, whether they want it to or not. It doesn't matter what Vitalik wants. It doesn't matter what the Theorem community wants. It's a a, a simple question of physics. This thing is so freaking big that people cannot get the whole chain. And if people can't get the whole chain, less and less people are going to be running full nodes If less and less people are going to be running full nodes. You're only going to be stuck after a while with a handful of people who are in control of the whole damn thing. Not a good, not a good look, man. Not a good look. Anyway, that's your daily train wreck. Terrible Joke Corner brought to you by Bad Joke Cat. And today I got a twofer for you because these just, they, they it's sort of like a cut, like there's a couple places, there's a couple of songs. Well, you know, Van Halen has a couple of songs and there's always like, you know, a few songs from Rush or, or Pink Floyd. And, the, you know, they're they're back to back on the album and you try to play them out of order and it just doesn't make any sense. Same thing here, man. Bad Joke Cat says, why is Peter Pan always in flight? He never lands. Bad joke. And Bad Joke Cat says right after that, just told my joke about Peter Pan again. Never gets old. Double tap, bro. You just got double tapped. You just got double tapped for Terrible Joke Corner, man. Provided to you again by Bad Joke Cat. At Bad Joke Cat on Twitter. I love it. I love it. It's just like, it's like, Just when you thought you were done groaning by the first one, you get hit in the face with another bad joke. Man, hats off to Bad Joke Cat. I'm out. I will be back. I will do uh more uh, a little bit more of the biochar thing for the the rest of the week because this you know it's important uh, yeah i remember like all the times that i was like you know gardening and you know i would do stupid stuff like buy like you know 3 cubic meters of or 3 cubic yards of uh peat moss and till it into the soil don't do that, that <laughs> that's freaking stupid it, it is. It just is. I mean, it's like, unless you, unless you live in a climate that where it's like wet all the fricking time. And then if you, if it's wet all the freaking time, you've got, you've got other problems. Um, yeah, uh, it, it, it doesn't work. And the whole reason is like, you know, and I've made compost piles and turn, I've turned compost I'm no longer turning compost piles because it's a waste of my freaking time. I just, you just throw shit out in your yard. Because the soil critters are going to take care of it. I mean, you mow it in. If you if you got like a lawn or whatever, you just mow it in. If you've got a garden, you just shove it under mulch. It just, like a banana skin, don't throw it in the, in the garbage can, man. Just chuck it outside. Next time you run over it with a mower, it'll get chopped up and just drop to the ground and soil critters will take care of the garbage. You don't have to worry about it. But all this time, the whole reason I was doing all this was, I've got to figure out a way to get more organic material into the clay, the the heavy clay soils that I'm I'm always used to because where I live in, in the panhandle of Texas, but even when I was living in Lubbock all the way down to Midland that this entire region, because what's happening here is we're on the Eastern slope of the Rockies. So over the millions of years and billions of years of earth, you know, or well, 2.4 billion years of earth formation or whatever it is, After the Rockies rose up, they erode down, and as they get farther and farther out, the particle size of the the eroded material from the rock gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and when it gets to a particular size, it becomes clay, which is way smaller particle size than sand. Sand drains water, clay does not. Um, It also ends up having a a tendency to be fairly devoid of uh, nutrients. And that nutrient can be derived by all the microorganisms. But the pore spaces in between the the little particle sizes of clay are so freaking small that it, it really does inhibit even like microorganisms from being able to perform its function well. If you throw organic material in there, it really, really, really helps. It helps everything, even if all you want is a lawn. Screw fertilizers. This shit. This biochar stuff, you go buy it by the bag. It's really light. so from a from a, a shipping standpoint, unless unless you get it wet, like you know if they, if they're saying, hey we, we've pre-charged it and it comes wet, uh, that's a lot of money on shipping. but if it's dry and sterile, which means that you got to work with it after that, it's it's shipping is is almost nothing, man. I mean, because it's so light um, and if you can make it yourself or find somebody who is making it, good luck because I can't find anybody who even knows what the shit is in this region. Um, then it's, you know, it's e- it's easy to get, get your hands on. Um, but you can just like put it in with, uh, like, uh, put it into what you would normally spread fertilizer out with, you know, the little thing, the little basket with the wheels on it and you push it along and it's got a carriage that spins around underneath and it slings either seeds or fertilizer. You can just use that and just top dress your entire lawn. Do that for a few years. It's going to end up into the soil because the microorganisms are going to pull it down as they go about their usual daily business. Um, Or throw it in with mulch or, you know, just put, put handfuls of it in your garden beds. And you, at that point, if, like I said, if we hit, get all hippied out here, You know, you can say that you're helping save the environment by sequestering carbon. Eh, you know, it's not terrible. Yeah, I'm not saying that that CO2 is going to wreck us all. You know, we've had fluctuating CO2 levels way before mankind was ever here. So it's fluctuated even higher than it is at present day. And humans were not involved. Still, though, if you can get something out of it, I mean, if you, if we can figure out a way to get people to like fund the building of these things, because, Hey, it's a green technology and you can make a business out of it. Shit, man. Why not? I mean, why not? Anyway, so that's, that's, that's my thing. Uh, Like I said, we'll get, there's a lot more stuff about biochar and gasification and, um aquaponic systems and greenhouses that are being warmed by waste heat from you know all these systems plus mining bitcoin. You know, we can it's an interesting subject because we, we have been talking in the in you know in Bitcoin Twitter and in, in far afield about uh tapping the natural gas streams that are coming off of uh petrochemical production out in the field. And but there's there's a whole there is a completely untapped source of natural gas that is not underground. You know, it's not in out in the middle of the, the the oil fields of West Texas, where you bake like a biscuit in an oven in the summertime to go do this shit, which is terrible, terrible conditions, by the way, for for a server farm or a mining farm. Um, because at that point, a lot of your electricity is going to go into, uh, the cooling of your, the cooling of your system. So how do we, how do we extract the heat? You know, how do we get that heat to work for us, uh, by heating greenhouses in the winter and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, I find the whole thing fascinating and no. I'm not going to launch my own coin to do this. If if somebody wants to fund this shit, please just use Bitcoin. It's so much easier and so much less vile to the ecosystem that is Bitcoin. Anyway, I'll see you guys on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.